Good morning again. For those of you who are visiting with us for the very first time, welcome. And just so you know, I am not the pastor. The pastor is a lot taller than me and has just a little bit more hair. Anyway, I have been entrusted with the task of breaking the word in his absence. And it is always a sobering and weighty responsibility as I look at all of you and I see your smiles and I and it I, I become increasingly aware that I am preaching to eternal souls. It becomes a weighty, weighty responsibility. But I trust that God will work through my weaknesses and fulfill his promise of not letting his word return to him void. Our pastor has been leading us through the book of Matthew and today we will continue where he left off, specifically chapter 19, verses 13 to 30. And if you're not there yet, please open your Bibles there. Um, Again, that's Matthew 19, verses 13 to 30. And as Tom mentioned last week, chapters 19 and 20 of Matthew uh, deal with divine wisdom of the kingdom. And in today's passage, Jesus shows how that divine wisdom clashes with conventional wisdom as it pertains to being right with God. You know, conventional wisdom places a low value on children and a high value on a person considered wealthy. And in this narrative, Jesus addresses a very important question. And it's this question, how do we obtain eternal life? You know, as a people, we naturally want to have a step-by-step or step-by-step instructions on how to do things. So my earliest recollection of following a set of instructions was when I, as a child, I had to draw a picture by connecting dots in the order that they were numbered. And as I went through life, and I'm sure it's true for just about everyone else here, we deal with assembly instructions, we deal with user's manuals, we deal with solutions to problems, etc. so much so that for the most part, we like to deal with issues in life like a cookbook, I should say, where things can be reduced to step-by-step processes that we can understand and we can control. And so when Jesus gives an answer to the question, what must we do to obtain eternal life, our tendency is to expect to just be given a set of dots that we can connect. But as we will see from our passage today, it's really not a question of how well we are able to connect dots, but rather a question of how much do we rely on and trust in God. So follow me as I read from our passage today. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him uh, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments, he said to him. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now we have a rather lengthy passage here, and although the central idea revolves around the matter of entrance into God's kingdom, I would like to approach it in three sections. The first section I would like to consider would be verses 13 to 16, in which Jesus commends the little children. Uh, We're told that the children were brought to him so that he can lay his hands on them and pray. And we've seen in passages leading to this one that it was common for Jesus to touch people. And those who sought his touch usually had some kind of ailment. But here we're not told that the children had any specific need. And their parents simply wanted Jesus to touch them and pray for them as a form of blessing. It then says that the disciples rebuked the people. And in this case, they likely rebuked the parents of these children. Why would they do that? Well, it's possible that they felt that it was a waste of their master's time to touch these healthy children. But Jesus asked for the children and told his disciples not to hinder them. In fact, in a parallel passage in Mark, it says that Jesus was indignant. He was indignant. He then declares that God's kingdom belonged to such as them And I suspect that when he said this, it was confusing and perhaps even disturbing to those who heard it. I mean, in the context of that society, Jesus, uh, I mean, children, sorry, were not held in high regard. And consider that in earlier passages in Matthew, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders. And they were the ones who thought that if anyone gets in the kingdom first, it would be them. So what? is it about the children that Jesus commends? What is it about children that one is to emulate in order to enter the kingdom of God? Now, it is the nature of their faith, which can be described, as Ray mentioned earlier, a childlike faith. You know, when we were children, there's so much we didn't understand about the world we live in. And so, in our innocence, we relied so much on our parents or someone older than us, other adults who provide us guidance and direction on various things some of them very basic what to eat what to wear what time to go to bed etc there's an implicit trust there an understanding that i as a child am not self-sufficient and i need to put my life in the hands of someone greater than me and in commending these little children jesus is giving a picture of the kind of faith that gets one in the kingdom a faith that is not rife with self-sufficiency, but rather a trust in the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation and righteousness. Now, I would be remiss 
if I didn't mention what I think is a misunderstanding of what Jesus was commending. I've heard it enough on Christian radio, and I've read it often enough in commentaries on the web, that it is a common misunderstanding. And that is to say that to be a Christian is to have a simple faith. That is, we're talking about a faith that, that does not seek to grow and is content with the milk of the gospel. It's a faith that sees no need to spend time and energy pouring over scriptures and does not see the need for deep theology and doctrine. I would call it not a childlike faith, but a childish faith. I remember a time when my daughter was about four years old. And I just realized I didn't ask her if I could share this. She was four years old, and she was playing with a toy hammer. And by the way, if you ever give a child a hammer, a toy one or a real one, it really doesn't matter. More often than not, they will find that everything needs pounding. Anyway, she stood behind a large cardboard box, and with her best approximation of a court judge's stern expression, she pounded on the top of the box, shouting, order, order, order. And that was cute and hilarious. In fact, watching any young child try to act in a grown-up manner is quite amusing. But let's change the scenario and imagine instead a teenager or an adult acting like a four-year-old. Or maybe we don't have to imagine because we've seen one. <laughs> maybe it's us. I know I've had my moments. And in that case, I think most of us will no longer describe it as cute or amusing. When we encounter someone like that, behaving that way, we usually say, he or she needs to grow up. And it's the same thing with our faith. It needs to grow and mature through partaking of the meat of God's word. It's how we can incrementally grow out of our natural self-centeredness or other sins that characterize a childish, immature faith. Now, the Apostle Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when he said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. So Jesus is not commending a simple childish faith, but rather a childlike faith that trusts in him. Now the second section I would like to, for us to look at would be verses 16 to 22. In these verses, we have a man who comes to Jesus with a question. It's interesting to look at the parallel accounts of this event in Luke 18 and Mark 10. There are some subtle differences worth considering. In Mark chapter 10, we are told that this man actually came running and even knelt in front of Jesus before asking him his question. And in both Mark and Luke, he's referred to as a ruler. And the use of the term ruler could mean that he is one who is in authority, whether um, as a state or as a church leader. It could be a term used just to refer to the affluent of, of Jewish society. In any case, here's a young man who has clearly distinguished himself among his people, and he starts, in Mark and Luke, he starts by addressing Jesus as good teacher. And then he asks, what must I do to have eternal life? Now again, in Luke and Mark, he asks the question this way, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's a question that ignores the fact that inheritance, by definition, is something that is obtained by birthright, 
or it's bestowed, one cannot work for an inheritance. If it's something worked for, it's a wage. It's not an inheritance. But Jesus' initial answer does not focus on that point. Rather, he asks the man why he referred to him as good and then said that God alone is good. What was Jesus' intent in asking this question? Was he denying his deity? Well, in light of what the rest of Scripture reveals about him and his claims of having a divine nature, we know that's not the case. In fact, he uses the adjective good to describe himself when he said, I am the good shepherd. And it wasn't the adjective itself, but the way it was used. It's possible that Jesus answered this way because he detected some insincerity or flattery in the words of the man. But he also wanted to point out to the man that the highest possible standard of goodness is God himself. And in pointing this out, Jesus made the man realize that he may consider himself good by his own standard or compared to others, but it is God's standard of goodness that he must live up to. So he then says that to have eternal life, he should keep the commandments. And then the man asked, well, which ones? Essentially, he was asking Jesus to tell him how to connect the dots. So Jesus answered by reminding the man of some of the major commandments. Not lying, not murdering, not stealing, not committing adultery, honoring one's parents. I've kept all of this, he said. And at this, po th this point, the man was probably feeling a little better about himself because he thought he had satisfied the requirements of the law. But he still wanted to make sure. And then he asked, what else is left for him to do? Now, this is where I, I'm really in awe of Jesus' patience. At this point, Jesus could have said, you must not have been there when I gave the Sermon on the Mount. Have you hated your brother? Then you've committed murder in your heart. Have you looked lustfully at a woman? Then you have committed adultery in your heart. But Jesus didn't say that. Instead, Jesus proceeded to uncover the man's idol when he said, if you would be perfect, or in Luke's account, it says, one thing you still lack, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. These are very difficult words, and it behooves us to consider what our Lord meant. Now, in saying that the ruler must give everything, or I'm sorry, sell everything and give the proceeds away, I don't think he's handing down a permanent law for the church to follow. Instead, his intent in this statement was to point out a couple of things related to the man's original question. First, he was telling the man that he was lacking in total righteousness and so he stands condemned. His reliance on his works does not make him good by God's standards. And that won't earn him the eternal life he sought. Second, Jesus' answer was a veiled reference to the man's violation of one of the commandments, that he should not have an idol. An idol is something that comes before God in order of importance in one's life. Now in Colossians 3.5, this is what the apostle Paul says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, 
sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul equates covetousness and greed to idolatry. And that's what's happening here with the rich young man. His idol was his wealth. And what he lacked was not the action itself of giving all he has to the poor. That's not what he lacked. But the willingness to stop trusting in his idol and turn to God. But you see the kindness of Jesus here. He did not leave the man hanging. Jesus extends to him a personal invitation. Come, follow me. Now think about scriptures. You can't tell how it was told. But I can imagine this being said so gently. And this was an invitation to follow Jesus, the person, and not just his teachings. Note that Jesus did not say, come and follow my teachings. But rather, come, follow me. His person is essential to the man's salvation. And what happens next is perhaps one of the saddest events in scripture. Here was a man who came face to face with Jesus, God incarnate. And he could not get himself to let go of the idol in his life, to follow the giver of eternal life. Perhaps you may have heard stories of how monkeys are trapped and caught in places like South America, India, and Africa. The methods vary, but the principle is the same. And one method is to get a bottle with a narrow mouth and put some food inside that attracts the monkey. And so when the monkey finds the bottle, it reaches in to get the food, and the mouth is wide enough to, so that the monkey get, can get his arm inside and grab the food. But when it does, its hand forms a fist that is too big to go back out through the mouth of the bottle. I've seen YouTube videos showing variations of the method, and if it's in YouTube, it must be true, right? <laughs> but the principle is always the same. The monkey can get away from its trappers if it would just let go of the food, but it wouldn't. Just like the rich young ruler in his wealth. Now the last section I'd like to expand on would be verses 23 to 30. Now, verses 23 and 24 is Jesus' well-known statement comparing the rich having greater difficulty getting into the kingdom of God than a camel going through the eye of a needle. Now, we should carefully consider what Jesus was saying here because, again, this passage can let, lend itself to all sorts of misinterpretations. First of all, was Jesus issuing a blanket statement condemning wealthy people? Verses 23 and 24 oftentimes have been used to condemn wealth as something evil. And people who believe that consequently sees poverty as a virtue. But is there something inherently wrong with wealth? No. Because such an interpretation of Jesus' words will, will clash with parts of scripture that refer to wealth as a blessing. For example, in Proverbs 10.22 says, it, it says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich, and he adds, he adds no sorrow with it. Also, God gave massive wealth to Solomon, even though Solomon didn't ask for it. And if having great wealth and money in itself were, in fact, evil, why would God choose to give someone large amounts of it? Same thing with Job. It says that he was blessed, not cursed, 
by God with great wealth after he was tested. Now, let me say a word about poor people. Scripture recognizes that there are several possible reasons why people are poor. The most obvious is because of laziness and a refusal to work. And in this case, one's poverty is one's own fault. And the book of Proverbs has plenty to say about the sluggard's habits leading to poverty. But it is a mistake to come to a quick conclusion that all poor people are lazy. People can be poor because they are victims of calamities. Perhaps they're exploited by unscrupulous people in power. Sometimes they may be poor for righteousness' sake. Just like our pastor said last week, uh, he cited that some people choose singleness over marriage because they realize that if they stay single, they can best serve the kingdom by not having any marital or family responsibilities. And the same can be said if we can say that about the poor, the same can be said about wealthy people. Some are rich because they're crooked, unscrupulous, and unmerciful towards others. Some are rich because they're industrious, and they're engaged in good stewardship of their earnings. And still there are others who are rich because they're recipients of an inheritance. So there are many reasons why people can be poor or, or rich. And my point in mentioning these examples is that the Bible does not espouse a worldview that exalts poverty as a virtue and at the same time despises riches or wealth as a vice. Some of you may have seen the movie Fiddler on the Roof, and if you haven't, we need to talk. <laughs> I'm sure you remember the main character, for those of you who have seen it, Tevye. He was a poor milkman with five daughters. And one day Tevye was having a discussion with a man named Perchik, who was an up-and-coming member of the socialist movement and a suitor of one of his daughters. And in that conversation, Perchik was telling Tevye that wealth is a curse, the source of many evils in this world. And Tevye's response, without <laughs> hesitation, was, if God is a curse, I mean, if money is a curse, then may the Lord smite me with it, and may I never recover. <laughs> Sometimes we think of money that way. It's a disease, it's evil, but we don't mind being stricken by it. But in our passage, Jesus was not, as I mentioned previously, he was not viewing money as evil, but rather he was establishing a connection between one's wealth and one's ability, or more appropriately, inability to enter the kingdom of God. His point here is not that wealth is inherently evil, but great wealth can become the very barrier that prevents a person from entering the kingdom of God. With great wealth comes a measure of power. It comes with a, a feeling of self-sufficiency that can make it difficult for someone to admit his need or her need for God. Its maintenance can also require a tremendous amount of time and energy. That it can become an obsession. It can get to the point where a wealthy person is not master of his wealth, but his wealth becomes his master. And so Jesus said in another place, we cannot serve both God and money, or wealth. Now, we come to Jesus' statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This statement has been the subject of many discussions and debates concerning its meaning. A popular suggestion is that this may be a reference 
to a gate in Jerusalem called the Needles Gap, an opening with low clearance that in order for a camel to go through, all its baggage must be removed, forcing it, and then you force it on its knees, knees for it to call, crawl through and get in. And so the meaning of Jesus' statement would be that the rich should let go of their possessions and enter the kingdom of God on their knees. Kind of nice thought. But I think Jesus was merely using a hyperbole, a figure of speech, an intentional exaggeration to make a point. With a camel, he chose the largest animal native to the environment they lived in, and the eye of the needle was the smallest opening that came to mind. The disciples understood what Jesus was trying to communicate to them. And they realized that he was not merely communicating the idea of difficulty of the wealthy in getting into the kingdom, but rather the idea of impossibility. During Jesus' time, and even during our time, many people consider wealth to be an evidence of God's approval. And so if the wealthy, who are supposed to be abundantly blessed because they had God's favor, would find it impossible to enter the kingdom of heaven, who could? That's why the disciples were gracefully astonished, as it says in verse 26, asked, who then can be saved? Now, wealth, any wealth we possess is a gift from God but an abundance of it can make us focus on the gift rather than the giver. But it's not just wealth. I want to be clear about that. It's not just wealth that can become an idol. This can happen with any gift from God. People who are great achievers, exceedingly gifted, whether we're talking about artistic giftedness or intellectual giftedness, people who achieve great fame, they face the same temptations as the wealthy to fashion an idol out of their gifts unless God intervenes. So back to the, the young man or, or the discussion here. Now that Jesus has exposed the impotence of the idol of wealth, they had to ask who then can be saved. Let's consider Jesus' answer. What is impossible with men is possible with God. Why did he answer this way? Well, Jesus is telling them them that it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're prominent or unknown. It doesn't really matter what else you have. One cannot be saved by one's good works, status, or material possessions. It is impossible for man to attain salvation by their own merit. And only by God's grace can they have it. So Jesus' illustration with the camel and the needle showed that the disciples showed the disciples that entry into God's kingdom, uh, which they thought was achievable by human means, was really impossible. But this impossibility is made possible by God's sovereign grace. Now, it's apparent that Peter and the other disciples were listening to the conversation between Jesus and the rich young man. And it would seem from what Peter said that he was still thinking in terms of fulfilling some command. He was still thinking of connecting some dots, performing some good work in order to enter God's kingdom. Because after hearing Jesus, uh, or after hearing what Jesus required of the rich young ruler, he declared, well, see, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? There are a couple of observations that we can make from this response from Peter. First, it reveals that the disciples, or Peter at least, 
are at this time still didn't understand salvation by grace. But it shouldn't surprise us. In fact, we will see in later chapters in Matthew that uh, as well as the you know, parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, that there was still a great deal they didn't understand. So let's give them a pass. Uh, secondly, Peter asked a question that we as believers ask at times when we consider the cost of being a disciple of Christ. Is it worth it? That's basically what Peter was asking. It's a question we would love to hear an answer to, and I am sure glad Peter asked the question. And Jesus' answer is recorded for all of us to read and to hear. His answer. He made a statement that would serve to reassure not only those who are there, but his followers through the ages. He said, truly I say to you, in the new world when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. There's a little bit of apocalyptic language in Jesus' response that I will not cover at this time because the truths Jesus speaks of will be covered when we get to later chapters in Matthew. I check with Tom on that, so I'm okay. <laughs> Give me a pass. But the main point, otherwise we'll be here till then. But the main point for us to consider is Jesus' answer to Peter's question, what then will we have? And although Jesus' answer does not get to the specifics, his answer for all of us asking the question is this. It's worth it. It's worth it. And this is a reassuring statement for anyone in the faith who feels like they are giving up too much for God. Anything given up for the sake of his kingdom pales in comparison to the blessings God pours in this life and especially on, in the next for those who do so. Now, we should not let this thought lead us to a mercenary mindset where our primary objective is not to please and ser serve our Savior, but we have our eyes focused on the reward rather than the giver of the reward. Nor should we view this statement as a license to attempt to manipulate God. Rather, it is to give, it is to give us some sense of the abundant blessings that God showers on those who follow him and live their lives for him. So, now that we've heard the word, I will do my best to give a couple of applications that I pray the Spirit will use to bring the word to bear in our lives because uh, we don't want to be what the scripture describes or as the man who sees himself in the mirror and then walks away and forgets what he looks like. And in a gathering as big as what we have this morning, I will not be quick to assume that everybody here is a follower of Christ. And if you are one who is in the midst of investigating the claims of Jesus Christ, I'd like you to consider how the passage this morning might apply to you. First off, when I mention that Jesus commends a childlike faith, I hope you understand that it does not mean that we are called to leave our brains at the door whenever we are faced with the claims of Scripture. It is not a blind, unthinking trust in Him 
that Jesus is asking for. Rather, it is a trust based on his person. And we are speaking of one who has established his credibility like no one else has. Through the miracles he performed, his resurrection from the dead. And if his claims sound too outlandish, too fantastic to be true, I hope that you will seriously take the time to investigate. Because it's not just your intellectual satisfaction that you want to address. But if Jesus' claims are true, whether you spend your, whether you spend your eternity at peace or at enmity with God hangs in the balance. Now, I'm aware also that it's not uncommon for one to say, well, I'm, I'm not going to believe in the claims of Christ until I understand every little thing about the Bible. Now, that sounds like a fair condition, doesn't it? After all, if we're going to stake our eternity on what's in this book, shouldn't we understand it all first? Well, let me say that if you're thinking that way, I completely <coughs> understand because I once did. But in time, I came to realize that thinking this way was childish as well as arrogant. I presumed that I had the ability to wrap my mind around all there is to know about God. But by His grace, He opened my eyes to understand the simple truth of the gospel first and foremost. And that humbled me enough that it brought me to my knees especially when I realized that I was dealing with my creator, one who is all-powerful and yet full of grace and mercy and love to the point that in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, he took my sins upon himself and reconciled me to God. So if you're in that situation, I humbly implore you to consider the message of the gospel. And I pray that you, as you seek clarity for your questions, you will find not only answers, but you will find a loving, merciful Savior as well. And as you do that, I trust that the Lord will change your heart and let you see any counterfeit forms of grace that you might still have in your life, whether it's good works, wealth, education, so forth. And when that time comes, you will see Jesus as a greater treasure so that you don't walk away, just as the rich young ruler in our passage today did. Now, for those of you, for those of us, for followers of Christ, I know that we all began a relationship with our Savior with a simple childlike faith and trust in his finished work on the cross. And just as we expect those who are children among us to mature, so scripture speaks of all of us abandoning childish ways in our faith. Now, a childish faith can manifest itself in so many ways. For example, expecting God to pretty much do whatever we want, so much so that our prayers are like wish lists rather than prayers of praise or repentance. It would also be a refusal to know the deeper things of God. Y yes, we love to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. But it shouldn't be, Jesus loves me, and that's really all I need to know. It could also lead to an intellectual arrogance where we might say, well, I don't understand this part or that part of God's word, and until I do, I refuse to believe or obey it. And I do realize, I realize that we are all in different stages in the growth of our love and the knowledge of him. We are in different stages, and that's the beauty of the church. 
That's why we minister to each other. That's why we disciple each other. But let's ask the Lord to show us areas in our lives, prideful corners in our souls where we need to be more childlike before him and for the grace to walk humbly before him. Now, we all saw in Jesus' encounter with the rich young man that we all need him. We all need God to uncover the idols in our lives. Even if we've already been born again, we continue to struggle with idols, both tangible and intangible. And that takes from what should be a singular and primary affection for God. But I submit to you that with all his riches, the rich young ruler forgot one thing. Ultimately, he didn't own it. He didn't own it. It was all God's. And with all the riches that he had, he was just a steward. And it's true for us as well. Whatever takes the form of an idol in our lives, start out as a good gift from God that we are all called to be stewards of. Whether we're talking about riches, we're talking about intellect, we're talking about artistic talent, health, beauty, even friends and family. We are to use them for the glory of God rather than claim them primarily for our own glory. So I challenge us, all of us, myself especially included, to keep in mind that we are merely stewards of God's gifts. And by his grace, keep us from turning them into idols that we place in front of him. Now, in some cases, we may be called to give up what we have. And Jesus says, in that situation, trust me, it's worth it. You know, this past week, a giant in the faith, Elizabeth Elliot, went home to be with the Lord. And as I was preparing for today, I was, I was reminded of the famous quote from Jim Elliot, her husband, who back in 1956 was killed by the Kritcha Indian tribe as he was bringing the gospel to them. And this is what he said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me repeat that. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And like the rich young ruler, we can likewise say it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for us to do these things in our own power. So at this time, I'm, I'm, I'm done. At this time, I invite all of you to use the moment of silence that we will now observe to ask for God's help in these areas, whether it be in the uncovering of an idol or conviction that leads to repentance or continued grace for us to walk humbly before him. And uh, Keith will close us in a few minutes.